from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another in our series of Music and the Brain podcasts. I'm Steve Mencher, and I'm joined by Jacqueline Helfgott, who's professor and chair of the Criminal Justice Department at Seattle University, and Norman Middleton, a concert producer here at the Library of Congress. And I love the, at least the subtitle of the talk that you two are about to give, or the presentation, Halt or I'll Play Vivaldi. Now, who came up with that? Was that, that was you, Norman. Right. <laughs> well, well, actually, I, it was the title of a newspaper article about music and crime, and I thought it was so catchy, and I am a big Vivaldi fan, and so I thought I would just go ahead and use it for Jackie and my talk this evening. Fabulous. So, Jackie, can I call you Jackie, mm -hmm. or that's what yes. people call it? Good, I will then. Music and criminal behavior and crime prevention are what you're going to be talking about. And you start out, at least in, in the notes I read, talking a little bit about routine activity theory, which sounded fascinating to me. What would that be? Routine activity theory is a dominant theory in, in criminology associated with Marcus Felsen. And it basically states that in order to combat crime, we need to decrease temptations and increase controls. Okay, so decreased temptations. They, I mean, it helped me to read a little bit about this because I start to understand myself a little better. If there's a $10 bill lying on the table and, and I know it belongs to someone, I'm probably not going to take it. But there may be some circumstance where I need to borrow the money to go buy lunch or something. I may have committed a crime, but the crime is not necessarily about the fact that I'm a bad person. It's as much about the fact that the $10 bill is lying there on the table. Is, is that what you're saying? Right. And, and what the theory basically says is that um, anybody has a potential to commit crime. I mean, crime is a routine, everyday phenomenon. And every, you know, people operate on the principle of limited rationality, that there's aspects of the environment that you can change to alter people's decision-making process. And um, it's also known as the potato chip principle, that if you put a bag of potato chips in front of someone, then they're probably going to eat the whole bag of potato chips. But So people have to have some sort of controls and restraints to direct their behavior in any given environment. So that's the basic principle upon which routine activity theory operates. Okay, so, so I think I'm starting to understand. The, in other words, one opportunity that you might have if you didn't want someone to eat the whole bag was to open the bag, let them take two or three, and then take the bag away. Right. So, yeah, if you want to limit your potato chip eating, yeah, put, you know, five chips in a Ziploc bag and put the rest in your cupboard. And <laughs> Good. We're going to get back to this theory and the ideas behind it, but I want to make sure we start at the very beginning here bringing music in. Where is music going to come into this crime theory? Well, routine activity theory is about situational and environmental crime prevention. And all of that is incorporated in what's known as crime prevention through environmental design, otherwise no called SEPTED. Crime and prevention through environmental, environmental design, design. Or you guys call it SEPTED. SEPTED. Okay. And many law enforcement agencies and public transit and schools employ SEPTED strategies um, in order to reduce the likelihood of different types of criminal behavior. Where music comes in is that there's a whole range of 
techniques that can be used. And most law enforcement agencies have a holistic approach to SEPTED, where they'll uh, employ a lot of different types of strategies. So anything from closing alleyways to reduce travel routes of individuals and uh, to increase lighting, to trimming bushes, to uh, elevating steps in order to create uh, impression of territorial markers. And where music comes in is that it's been used as a territorial marker to move crime away from a particular location. So it would be one strategy, like a spoke on the wheel. In fact, I've had law enforcement officers tell me that music and other techniques are more like a spoke in a wheel of a more holistic approach to SEPTED. Okay, crime prevention through environmental design. All right, now I know, Norman, you've been doing some research on this as well, and you had some case studies, especially you were trying to talk to some of the folks I know in West Palm Beach about how they were using music down there. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular case study? Yes. The West Palm Beach situation was actually the first instance that I heard about where law enforcement was using music to deter crime. And I had a few years ago, I had read an article about this situation in West Palm Beach where they had used this technique, and so I called them. I actually called the police force down there and spoke to a detective who told me that uh, they had used this, and it worked. And then I found a subsequent article where another detective outlined the thing more specifically. She said that there was a bar, a saloon down there that was in the middle of this environment that was really drug dealer infested and so they first they closed the bar down and then they went ahead and installed stereo speakers on the roof of this abandoned bar and they started piping in I think it was Beethoven string quartets into these speakers and they started blasting these string quartets into the neighborhood late at night After a while, they noticed that the drug dealers that were in this neighborhood uh, had scattered. Uh, By 10 p.m., there was nobody there anymore. When the police asked the people in the neighborhood about this, they said that we just don't like that kind of music. And so it was really uh, repugnant to them. And so it worked. Okay. Now, Jacqueline, you hinted at this before, and we will talk about why using music in this way might sometimes be a little controversial. One of the obvious things that you hinted at was the fact that this doesn't solve crime, this doesn't change the criminals, it simply may push the criminal activity from point A to point B. Is this a concern about people using music in this sort of way? Well, I mean, people have written about the ethics of using music. The issue is is about using the whole notion of if you increase the aesthetics of a particular environment, then you'll change the composition of that environment and certain people will be, be deterred. And so in terms of, you know, there's a class issue and an ethics issue in terms of, you know, some people believe that perhaps it's a misuse of music and associating particular types of music with particular types of groups and having people from high culture move into an area and say, okay, classical music is associated with high culture. And so if we play classical music, it's going to run the people who belong to low culture down the street. There are a lot of ethical and class-based you know, issues to think about and questions to ask about uh, the use of music in that way. Sure, because in fact, a lot of the intellectual debate in the 
last 10 or 20 or 30 years has been erasing these artificial boundaries. Uh, some people go to the opera and they go to like rock music and they like punk music and there is no high culture and low culture anymore in musicology, for instance. We've decided that we're looking at rhythm, we're looking at melody, we're not looking at good music and bad music or high culture and low culture. Right. And I do want to say something about that because I, I talked to a colleague recently. I was just ac actually at a criminology conference talking to a colleague about this who was a warden of a prison who said that they played classical music in the prison and the prisoners loved it. And so it really isn't a matter of, you know, people who commit crimes don't like classical music. And I mean, it's more reflexive relationship between the, the types of music and culture that are, that's criminalized and then the types of music that become associated with certain types of subcultural groups who engage in, in criminal behavior. And so what, what I mean by that is that um, certain types of music have been criminalized. So rap music, punk music, heavy metal music. And when I say criminalized, I mean that they've become associated in pop culture and contemporary culture with certain types of groups who are more inclined to engage in, or who tend to engage in antisocial behavior. So when music is criminalized, it feeds back into the subcultures and then uh, youth subcultures, youth you know, decide, okay, well, if the cops don't like this kind of music, then we're gonna like this kind of music. So it's not necessarily a matter of you know teenagers, gang members, people in prison don't like classical music or it doesn't have the same physiological response you know, on them as it does on other types of people, but it's, you know, part of it is the type of music that has become criminalized in culture. And then law enforcement agencies, you know, the crime prevention part of that comes from the fact that law enforcement agencies tap into the types of pop cultural artifacts that um, people who engage in that type of behavior might be associated with, if that makes sense. I think it sort of makes sense. Norman, maybe we can work on that a little bit because there were a lot of ideas all jumbled up together in that, and it was not bad. It was good. But let's go back a little bit because we, we've talked before, the last time we talked, about the fact that there is something in the society where uh, certain intervals or certain kind of music somehow got conflated with violence and that in thinking about music, we don't want to necessarily think that an interval is bad or playing music loud is bad or people listening to a certain kind of music has a negative connotation and yet we're dealing with those kinds of connotations. On the other hand, we're, we're not saying and none of the three of us would say that oh, classical music it makes a good atmosphere necessarily, so therefore that's why people play it to deter crime. But that might be the first, the, the hit that people get from this. We'll play Vivaldi on the street corner, we'll chase away the undesirables because the kind of atmosphere that comes from Vivaldi is a good crime-free atmosphere. Help me not make that case. <laughs> No, actually, I think it's more of an issue. It, I, I don't. I mean, although I know that there is research on the physiological effects of music, that is not what's at play, or that's not the dominant thing that's at play when we're talking about using music to repel crime. What's at play is this association between certain types of music and subcultural style and identity uh, of certain types of groups. And so, what is repelling people is that they don't. It's not cool to hang out and listen to 
Vivaldi at you know street corner. You're you know you're a teenager. You're a gang member. You know you're you're whatever. You know you, it's not cool to hang out. And the reason is because because what I was trying to explain before is the cultural association with uh, certain types of music with certain types of of subcultural groups. And there's a great book. It's actually a branch of criminology called Cultural Criminology. And Jeff Farrell is a criminologist associated with that. And he talks about how you, you cannot make sense of crime or crime prevention or criminal behavior, criminal justice without paying attention to pop culture. And there's a relationship between pop culture and crime and our responses to crime in society. And so that's what's at play when we're talking about using music as a, as a crime deterrent. Not that Bach, Vivaldi, Beethoven is going to soothe the savage beast. That's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about the association between style, aesthetic, and subcultural identity and certain types of music. Excellent. I, I think I'm starting to get that. And Norman, tell me if I'm getting it right. So it's not, again, as you just said, it's not that those kinds of music create this sort of magical atmosphere that make everybody peaceful. But in fact, if they're playing Barry Manilow and Barry Manilow is the, the least cool kind of music on the planet, then people who might be uh, into violence or crime or whatever, they're not going to want to hang out in this atmosphere with the Barry Manilow playing. They're just not going to want to be there. Yes, I was thinking about this chicken and egg thing, just to tag on to what Jackie was saying. The question is whether people are reacting to the music, no matter what it sounds like, or are they reacting negatively because this has the been music a presentation of cool, the Library no of Congress. What it sounds like. Visit us like at loc.com. So they don't only use classical music in these situations, they also use uh, what we call easy listening, Montevani, Lawrence Welk, Barry Manilow, Frank Sinatra, anything that's not rock and roll or not rap, or uh, as Jackie was saying, anything not associated with pop culture will be used in this manner. Okay, so tell me, let's take it another step and then let's see if this works or not. So the classical music might change the aesthetics of this corner that you're trying to change the aesthetics and chase people away. But if you played classical music at a garbage dump, that wouldn't necessarily change the aesthetics of the garbage dump. It's not that the music itself changes something, or, or would it? Gee, I don't know. Classical music at a garbage dump might change the aesthetic. <laughs> like I said, it's part of a more holistic uh, approach. I was involved in a, uh, I've done public art with prisoners for many years in the prisons. And part of what the prisoners did is paint bus stops, do metro bus stops. We do that in Seattle in order to reduce the likelihood of graffiti. And so, you know, doing murals on bus stops and, and increased lighting and changing colors and music together can change the, the aesthetic of, of environment. So it's a combination, but it's also, um, you know, the, there's another principle in routine activity theory is that you place safe activities in unsafe locations and you change the composition of the environment. And so it's not just about changing structures or buildings or paint or lighting. It's also about changing the activities and the people in that in environment. And so there was another, you know, in, in Tacoma Sound Transit, um, they also, uh, in Washington, they also used the classical music. And, you know, another thing that they did, and there's a neighborhood in Tacoma that's associated with uh, uh, a lot of gang activities, and that they had senior citizens. And this was a grassroots activity that the residents came up with, but senior citizens decided to play pinnacle on the street corner. And so that was another thing that was done. So it's not just changing the aesthetics, but also just changing the uh, activities and the types of people in the environment. 
Right, I was trying to think of examples of this because this seemed like sort of a tongue twister, making unsafe activities in safe locations and safe activities in unsafe mm -hmm. locations. So one of the things I thought about immediately, as you just described, was sort of a mural project, say, mm -hmm. on a high crime block. So that's mm -hmm. a sort of a safe activity. They're doing art, they're being creative, mm -hmm. they're doing a cultural thing, and all of a sudden, the unsafe area starts to become safe. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you can think of better examples than I did of an unsafe activity in a safe location. I was thinking of a skate park where that might be if you're skating down the steps of a metro or something, you know, that would be pretty unsafe in, in an unsafe location. But if you do that unsafe activity in a safe location where they've built a skating park, mm -hmm. then that's, a, again, a good thing for, for everybody. Uh -huh. Well, I mean, I guess another example, and I think this, actually the skating parts have been very good for communities, but uh, uh, there's always controversy about uh, when strip clubs move into more residential areas, and so bringing unsafe, does that make sense? I think so. Norman, <laughs> did you sort of get what she was trying to say there? The validation of the activity. I mean, if everything is bad in this one neighborhood, right. if it's a strip club right. and there's crime right. and there's drugs right. and people are ripping each other off, right. then right. everything about it is bad. But right. if you have a fairly safe neighborhood and you decide there's going to be strip clubs anyway, right. let's put the strip club in that neighborhood so we can see the people coming and going. Right. The people who own their homes can see these other people coming and going right. in the neighborhood. They're not going to get in trouble. They're not going to feel like they can do the other unsafe right. things. They're simply going to the strip club, which right. we've decided we can't outlaw that. Am I, am I getting that right? Right. I mean, you have a strip club in a residential community with public schools and children walking down the street. You're, it's not going, there's not going to be the same activity around that area as there would be in other areas that have a whole, you know, range of those types of uh, behaviors and, and activities. Sure, that makes sense to me. So let's end up talking a little bit more about some of these ethical dilemmas. When we talked about music and using it as a deterrent for crime, let's say. We also, I know, Norman, you were going to uh, talk a little bit in your talk, and I don't know if it's still going to be in there, but talking about music as, as punishment in, in some way, like, you know, blasting uh, General Noriega when they went down to Panama with bad rock and roll music to try to make them break, or blasting the people in Guantanamo Bay with music day and night in, in a way to annoy them and, and to make them unhappy and uncomfortable. This seems like it's related in some ways to what you're saying, and yet it seems like a very morally suspect use of music as a, to create atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, the idea of music as torture or music to repel people, I mean, there are negative uses of music. And this is really an open matter of debate, whether or not music, you know, it's a negative thing to be using. it. But the whole the ethical issue is simply the association of certain types of, of music with certain types of people. And it's been associated with, you know, the wealthier people moving into communities. And do they have a right to just blast their music and and run you know uh, other people out and we've got all kinds of communities you know where people have lived their their in, entire lives who may or may not be engaging in in antisocial and criminal behavior homeless you know drug addict uh, people um uh, like on community supervision, offenders coming out of prison, and transient populations, but who live on the streets and consider those areas their home. And then you have people coming in and condos being built. Then they decide they're going to increase the aesthetic of this environment and, and, and play the classical music and run. So there are ethical issues associated with, with, with doing that, and it's all hinges on that association of uh, music and high culture and aesthetics. But when uh, Stevie Wonder was here a few weeks ago, he mentioned when he was growing up in the inner city that there was one woman 
in the neighborhood who would play uh, uh, every Saturday during the Met Opera broadcast. She would play the Met Operas and she would blast these operas outside the window into the neighborhood. And people did complain. Stevie Wonder was teasing us about the fact that, you know, he was running around with his playmates and, and people in the neighborhood. And this woman was, was playing all this opera and, and people were going, and they were going, will you shut that stuff off? And she had no intention of gentrifying the neighborhood. She just liked it. And for whatever reason, she decided to blast it out the window. But people in that neighborhood did not like this music. Now, was it because the music was ugly or was it because they didn't know the music, that, that genre? But whatever it was, they found it repugnant. And so they they asked her not to do that. I have not personally heard of, of people in uh, up-and-coming neighborhoods, you know, sort of doing what the police do in, in drug neighborhoods, blasting classical music, you know, to get rid of the people who used to live there or the people who were there before. It's an interesting idea, but I don't think it would work. But, but the, I, the, I, I mean, the whole idea behind the use of classical music to move people to a different corner is this territoriality issue, you know, to, to, to mark the territories. And that's, you know, part of the whole, you know, situational crime prevention. And so, you know, the people who are arguing that there's an ethical issue are suggesting that, you know, it's taking it, that assumption that music is going to increase the aesthetic of an environment and therefore draw territorial boundaries so only law-abiding citizens can go... Uh, you know, within those boundaries, that that's taking us away from a more important, larger discussion that I was talking about before, the whole criminalization of pop culture and the whole association of certain of aesthetic and style and subcultural identity with certain types of uh, music. So the, the bottom line is that it's taking us away from the larger discussion of how does one group have a right to move another group out of a particular uh, area. And that's a larger discussion than just focusing on you know, how music can deter crime. Fabulous. Let's leave it there. This was just a, a really great discussion. I think I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And I'm sure the people who uh, come to your talk later tonight at the Library of Congress will enjoy it too. I've been talking to Jacqueline Helfgott, who's a professor and chair of the Criminal Justice Department at Seattle University, and Norman Middleton, concert producer here at the Library of Congress. This has been one in our series of Music and the Brain podcasts. I'm Steve Mencher, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.